0: If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11 is where we are headed today. We'll be picking up in verse 37 in a moment as we continue our way through these scenes at the table in the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 11, verse 37. As you're turning there, uh, I wanted to ask, have any of you seen the latest Disney movie, Encanto? Anybody? We've got okay, a couple. A few people have seen it. Um, it. It's an animated musical movie, just like the rest of Disney's classics. And over the past few weeks, one of the songs from this movie has broken all kinds of records by making its way to the very top number one on the Billboard charts. Never before has a Disney song done this right? So, I mean, people are listening. It's great. But this movie is about uh, the Madrigal family, and they are this family who occupy a place of honor in their community, in their town. They're an extraordinary family, uh, each with an extraordinary gift, and everyone looks to them. Everyone looks to this family. However— uh, back in the day, uh, some time ago, there was this sort of black sheep of the family who came along uh, and caused problems and ended up running away and risked disrupting their place of honor in the community. Uh, now, that black sheep of the family was someone named Bruno, Bruno was his name. And the song from the movie that has ascended to the top of the charts is a song called, We Don't Talk About Bruno. We Don't Talk About Bruno, right? And the name of this song is sort of the unspoken rule of the family, right? We don't talk about Bruno. We don't risk our family's place of honor in our community, and so throughout the song, each verse is sung by a different member of the family singing about, you know, how they experienced Bruno and stuff. And then it always comes back to, we don't talk about Bruno. So I guess they don't talk about Bruno, but maybe they do sing about Bruno is, is what you take away. You know, it's just kind of this ironic thing. Everyone is sort of saying their own piece about it. But after the song ends, the family is all gathered around the table for a special dinner, and everything needs to go perfectly at this dinner, right? There's, there's a lot at stake in, in what's going on in the, in the movie, but I'm sure you can imagine that right after this song has occurred, there's a lot of tension in the room. There's a lot of tension around the table, and the, the question is right there in front of them, Are we going to sort of follow the rules and have a nice family meal or are we going to talk about Bruno, right? You know, which is going to happen? Are we going to pretend like everything is just fine or are we going to address the problems that are beginning to emerge in and among our family? And this really is the central question at the heart of the movie. Uh, and I, I won't give away or explain any more. It's a, it's a really beautiful movie. I would definitely recommend uh, watching it. There's a lot to reflect on. And, uh, you know, if you do watch it, then enjoy having We Don't Talk About Bruno stuck in your head for the next week or so. Um, but it's great. But see, I love how all of this builds to this scene at the table. Uh, it builds to this scene around the table with a choice between proper expectations or honest conversations, right? That's the tension that they have, and of course, scenes like this exist in all kinds of movies and shows. I'm sure you might be able to think of another tense meal scene, right, where there's something that's unspoken, but everyone's sort of on edge. What are we going to say? What are we going to do, right? And the wonderful storyteller that Luke is, well, he includes a scene just like this. You know, of all the meal scenes throughout the gospel of Luke, there's at least one where there is this tension in the room. You see, most of the time, Jesus' meals with people are a cause for celebration, right? Uh, There's the celebration of Levi, who has just followed Jesus There's the celebration of the thousands of people that Jesus feeds by breaking bread and getting his disciples to pass it out to all of them. Most of the time, these meal scenes are are a picture of celebration, but sometimes meals can be an occasion for confrontation as well. And in our scene today, Jesus foregoes the proper etiquette in order to have a difficult but necessary conversation. So let's read together Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. And then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without even knowing it. And then one of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you built their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. And when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you call us to you. You do not spare hard words, but you call us to your side and our hearts to attend to you. And so God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would soften our hearts and sharpen our minds that we might know you and love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is a tense scene, isn't it? Right? That that took a turn. They're hanging out. Jesus is invited over for a dinner, and then things get rough, right? Jesus talks about Bruno. Uh, is you know no other way to put it, right? And so let's walk back through this story and, and see what each movement has for us. Verse 37 begins, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. So you see, Jesus has continued traveling and teaching, and along the way, a Pharisee invites Jesus, this intriguing and influential teacher, to come in and eat dinner. And so Jesus accepts this invitation. It says he goes in to recline at the table, right? And there's our phrase, at the table. That's the phrase we've been talking about this whole time. Now, sorry get adjusted here. Now, before we go on to the rest of the text— I want to pause here and reemphasize something that we've been talking about for several weeks here. And that is table fellowship is this very significant thing right? It's this very significant thing in that culture. Uh, And and, I mean, it is in our culture as well. There's a certain social significance. Who are you willing to eat with and and, and that sort of thing. But in that culture, there's also this much deeper spiritual significance uh, to eating together in in which those who break bread together receive the same blessing that's been spoken over that bread— Right? This is what's going on when people sit and eat together. So it is an even more significant thing that even though there have been these rising tensions between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Luke, that nonetheless, they still eat together. They're still eating together here, right? The, the Pharisees invite Jesus, and Jesus accepts that invitation. And and I think this is a challenge for us as we continue forward, right? Are we able to sit at the table with those who we have tensions with, with those who we might disagree with? Are we able to join together? Another way of putting it, is our table as big as Jesus' table? He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He eats with Pharisees. He breaks bread for the thousands and feeds them all. Is our table as big as Jesus' table? Right? That's a challenge for us to consider throughout this whole uh, series, all these different stories that Luke tells. He's challenging us into this. And so Jesus joins the meal But then, of course, things take a turn. In verse 38, the Pharisee is surprised when he notices that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, a couple of things here. Uh, First, the Pharisee is surprised. This word can be translated astonished or, or marveled at, right? And it's a reaction we see a lot throughout the gospel story. The the crowds are often astonished at something that Jesus has said. They're often marveling at some miracle that Jesus has done. But this word is not always positive. And and here, I'm, I'm sure the Pharisee is not astonished and marveling at what Jesus had just done. Rather, this Pharisee is shocked, maybe offended, surprised by what had just happened. And what did just happen, right? It says that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. And I have to be honest, uh, reading this kind of hits a little bit differently than it might have a few years ago, now that we have hand sanitizer in every corner of our lives, right? It's like, oh man, why didn't he just wash his hands? But most scholars agree this is not primarily about sanitizing. Uh, it's not primarily about you know wash your hands before you eat, rather um, the the word used here for wash has the same root as the word that is translated baptism, uh, baptize. So so this is referring to some kind of ritual act that the Pharisees had had enacted and and come to expect in their. Gatherings. It wasn't technically part of the law, but it was proper etiquette with the Pharisees. And Jesus just skips it. He just totally skips it. Now, uh, maybe it is as simple as the fact that Jesus was, you know, this blue collar carpenter who grew up in Nazareth, and he's just not aware of the customs of these Pharisees. That could be the case, but I think it's more likely that Jesus is doing something intentional here. Jesus is doing something intentional. You know, prophets often preach with actions and not just words. Uh, Prophets often preach with actions and not just words. Isaiah wandered around naked for several years, right? Uh, That was an action that he did. Uh, you can read about it. I think it's Isaiah 23 or somewhere thereabouts. Um, Jeremiah uh, sort of famously went to a potter's house and got this jar and then went before a bunch of people and smashed it on the ground, right? That act was his sermon for the people at that time. Uh, m- most of us are familiar with Hosea, who marries a prostitute, right? This is a sermon in and of itself, uh, this action. Uh, you know, later on, John the Baptist comes and, and he, you know, lives out in the wilderness and all these things, right? This is an action that is a sermon in and of itself in many ways. Uh, you know, considering the more recent history, someone like Martin Luther King, Jr., the Civil Rights Movement, right? He had plenty to say. He had, you know, great speeches, but many of the actions that they took were sermons in and of themselves, Uh, sit-ins or marches or things like that were prophetic actions that that preached. And um, so this is often something that prophets and prophet figures will do. They preach not only with words, but also with Actions that provoke the message that they are trying to communicate, that they're called to communicate. And so perhaps something like this is happening here. Perhaps something like this is happening. Jesus is not against ritual acts any more than Isaiah is against clothing or Jeremiah is against clay jars. Rather, Jesus is prophetically provoking the hard hearts of the Pharisees so that he can address the tension that's in the room, so that he can address what is going on. And and that's exactly what happens here. It's exactly what happens. So in verse 39, Jesus sees the shock of what it is that he has just done, or rather what he has just not done, on the Pharisee's face, and he uses that opportunity to speak to the heart. And Jesus says, now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. And then Jesus launches, right? I mean, he just launches what follows are six woes. Three to the Pharisees, and then three more to the law experts who were there in the room. And so I'm just going to talk through each of these six really quickly, and and then highlight some themes that seem to emerge, right? And so the very first woe in verse 42, Woe to you Pharisees! You give God a tenth of your mint, rue, all kinds of other garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. He's saying, hey guys, you know, you're, you're doing some of the right things. You're, you're tithing, you're giving, you're, you're on and on. This is good, but you're not doing them for the right reasons. Uh, this goes deeper than just what you're doing. This goes to the depths of the heart, right? You're you're giving, you're doing some good things, but where is the love and the justice of God? This is what we need to attend to. He goes on in verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues, and you love those respectful greetings in the marketplace, right? Again, there's this emphasis on the outside. You, know, you you want the best seats. You want to have that honor, just like the the, the Madrigal family. They wanted the honor in their society, um, and they didn't want to risk that. Same thing was true for the Pharisees. He goes on in verse 44, "...woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves," which people walk over without even knowing it, right? You know, you look like a nice, pretty patch of grass or whatever, But underneath it, there is nothing but death. So he keeps digging deeper into them. And then, you know, one of the law experts who's there speaks up and says, Hey, teacher, what you're saying is insulting us too. And he's like, Oh, now that you bring that up. And in verse 46, he continues, You experts in the law, woe to you as well. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves don't lift a little finger to help them, right? You've read the law. You know all the long lists of things you're supposed to do and not do. And you just sort of heap that on everyone else. And then he continues in verse 47, another woe, woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. Uh, and he goes on for a while about this, and he, he says, you know, all the way from Abel to Zechariah. Uh, and, and what's going on here is, you know, Abel is, is in Genesis chapter 4, is, is the first person in all of Scripture to be murdered uh, by his brother, Cain. And then Zechariah is uh, probably referencing a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, which, in the order of the Jewish Bible, is the last prophet to be murdered. And so Jesus is saying the first person to have been murdered unjustly to the last person to have been unjustly murdered. uh, You agree with all of them, right? Your father's murdered them, and you have built their tombs. You're no different than those who have killed the prophets. Experts in the law, you know the prophets, you know what they have said, but they are better to you dead because you can make them say whatever you want them to say instead of actually listening to them and being challenged by them. And then finally, in verse 52, "'Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered.'" and you have hindered those who were entering, right? They study, they know so much, but they do nothing with it. You know, they have the keys, and they've just thrown them away, right? So these are the woes that Jesus says over and over again. Now, what are some of the themes that come out from these woes? You know, as I was reading this passage, I was like, oh boy, this is going to be fun, right? You know, just get to really preach a big woe sermon, um, but what do these things teach us about the kingdom of God? What, what is Jesus showing us here? Because see, what Jesus is saying, he's saying there is more here than what's on the surface. He's inviting us more deeply into these things. He's not simply pronouncing woes. He's saying, hey, guys, there's more here. So can we, can we hear the more that Jesus is inviting us to? One of the first themes that I notice here is over and over again, Jesus seems to be emphasizing it is not merely external obedience that God wants, but internal transformation. It's not merely external obedience, but internal transformation, right? He, he begins by saying, hey, you wash the outside of the cup and the dish, the inside remains a mess. You know, do, do any of you have any sort of, you know, nice china that you display on some sort of case or something like that? Uh, you know, I've, I've had that from time to time set, you know, a nice crystal bowl out somewhere, and it's beautiful, and it's nice, and it just collects a ton of dust, right? And he's saying, that's what is going on with you guys. The outside's nice and shiny, and the inside is worthless. You know, you don't want to serve anything out of a dusty bowl, That's what's going on with them. Uh, Again, he emphasizes the difference between external obedience and internal transformation with that uh, sense of, hey, you're tithing all these things. You're doing the right stuff. But let's go deeper. You're neglecting the love and the justice of God. The kingdom of God is not something we can just check off a list and say, hey, I'm done. Woohoo, I did my thing. Uh, It is something that we constantly lean into, constantly pursue. God, what are you doing? What are you calling me to in this moment? Where does the love of God call me to? What does the justice of God call me to do here and now? It's this constant uh, cultivation of awareness in each moment. And then finally, he uses this image of, you know, unmarked graves, right? Once more, this highlights the difference between external and internal, right? It looks very nice on the outside, but on the inside, it's just death. It's just bones, right? The kingdom of God is not just external obedience, but internal transformation. And now I want to emphasize, it's not an either-or Right? Because it can be very easy to run down this path, and anytime someone begins to say, "Hey, like, we, we ought to be doing this, or we should be doing that," say, "Hey, you're just making a bunch of new rules." You know? It's not about that. It's about internal stuff, right? But, but notice what Jesus says in verse 42, at the end of verse 42, he says, "You should have practiced the latter, the love and the justice of God, without neglecting. The former. It's not either external obedience or internal transformation. It is both obedience and transformation. Because, see, obedience can happen with a hard heart. Transformation can't. Transformation uh, is something that begins deep within us, and exudes out into our actions. This is the stuff of the kingdom of God. Not just external obedience, but internal transformation. The next theme that I see here, which is certainly related, is that, uh, and and he specifically kind of says this to the, the law experts, he says, guys, it's not just about knowledge. It's about action, and more than that, love. It's not just about knowing things. It's about responding to the things that you know and responding to those with the love of God, right? We see this as he talks to those law experts, and he says in verse 46, you heap these heavy burdens on other people, and yet you refuse to lift one finger to help them right? This knowledge is not just about, hey, let me download all of this stuff to you, and now you got to go do it yourself. Um, The kingdom of God is something that we join together in. We lift not only a finger, but hands, our whole selves. Paul, later on, will write in one of his letters that we bear one another's burdens, right? We help carry each other, we don't heap shame and, and rules on one another. We say, hey, you're, you're struggling with this. You're having a hard time. Well, let me join you in that. Let me help you with this. Let me walk with you. But they weren't doing that, right? In the same way he talks about the prophets. And he says, hey, you have, are just as okay with the prophets being dead as your parents were who killed them right? Uh, You love the prophets whenever you don't actually have to look them face to face. You love the prophets whenever you get to tell people what they say, not whenever they're saying something to you, right? You, You love the Word of God as long as you're the one in charge of it. But what happens when the capital W Word of God is standing in front of you? Well, they reject him just like they did all the prophets before. It's not just about knowledge. It's about action and love. And then finally, there's that image that Jesus gives with the key, right? That's another picture of, you know, you have this key to knowledge, but, but you don't use it, right? It's not about having the key. It's about opening the door and walking through it, and not just walking through it yourself, but bringing others with you. That's what this is about. It's not just about knowing things. It's about living in these things. At the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mounts, and he also, uh, you know, that's in Matthew chapter 7, we also see this in the chapter before this, in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It's not just about knowledge. It's about responding to that knowledge, taking action. But it's not just about external obedience. It's about internal transformation. Do you see how these things are connecting? This is what Jesus, he's digging deeper. He's going deeper. And then finally, another theme that I see here through many of these woes is that Jesus is beginning to redefine their goal. He 's redefining uh, what they are pointing to, you know he 's redefining purity, you know their their emphasis on purity is you know we need to make sure that we wash our hands, do the right rituals, we need to make sure that you know the we look great, people can, can look at us and give us greetings of honor and we get our best seats in the synagogues and on and on, right that's what purity is all about that, that's what this is but You know, purity, or perhaps to put it one way, salvation, right? The goal of what God is doing. Salvation is not just about being free from other people, right? That's kind of what they're doing. I don't want to get stained by you. I don't want to get touched by you. But salvation is not about being free from others. Rather, salvation is about bringing others into freedom. It's about bringing other people along into the kingdom of God. He says that right at the very beginning, right? He says, you foolish people. In verse 41, as for what is inside of you, be generous to the poor, and all things will be clean for you. Purity is not about staying away from everyone. It's about running toward others, it's not about, you know, keeping my hands clean and, and staying, staying unentangled. It's about running toward others. And, and this being generous to the poor is not simply a way of saying, you know, make sure that, you know, you hand out and, and give people when they have need. It, it's this way of saying, treat them like your family, right? When your family's in need, you help each other. Whenever you encounter those in need, treat them like a brother. Treat them like a sister, be generous to them, and, and all things will be clean for you. He reemphasizes this again. With, we've talked about this over and over again. The emphasis on the love and the justice of God, right? Salvation is not about preserving myself. It's about protecting others, caring for others. Salvation is not about, you know, carrying my own burden and load. Uh, It's about helping others carry theirs. He talks about that in one of those other woes. It's about not just having the key or letting myself into the door. It's about opening the door so that myself and others can enter. Now, this radically reshapes the vision of salvation, they had in their day, and I think it radically reshapes the vision of salvation that many of us have had for ourselves, right? We have often heard salvation is about me getting to heaven. Salvation is about me being saved. And Jesus is saying, if that's what you're here for, you've missed the point. It's not about me being saved. It's about rejoicing in the reality of God is saving us, and everyone needs to experience this. Everyone needs to feel this freedom. It's not about me staying free. It's about me freeing others along with Jesus. This is a radically different way of thinking about what it means to live in God's salvation. It is not what we keep ourselves from, but rather what we run to. In order to help and love and serve, salvation is not something that I get for myself. Uh, If that's our vision of salvation, we're no different than the Pharisees who are just trying to protect themselves and maintain their own vision of, of cleanness and honor and so on and so forth. Salvation is not about self protection, but about caring for and loving and serving others. This is what Jesus is inviting them into with all of these woes. Guys, it goes deeper. It goes deeper. And so finally in verses 53 and 54, it comes to an end. We don't really see what the Pharisees say or or or, or do in response to this. It just says, When Jesus went outside, maybe Jesus, you know, finished, did a mic drop, and walked out. Who knows? Who knows how this ended? But when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely, besieging him with questions and waiting to catch him in something that he might say, right? This is how they respond, not with repentance— not with self-reflection, but by pointing their fingers at him. Well, if he is going to say woe to us, then we'll find a way to say woe to him. And that's how they respond. And as, as we come to a close here, I, I want to ask, how do we respond? How do we respond to this kind of thing? Whenever we are confronted right, whenever that sort of tension is broken, you know, whenever we move beyond the sort of surface-level niceties of proper table etiquette into the deep stuff of life, how do we respond? Do we point our fingers? Well, you know, maybe I did that, but, but look at them, right? They're much worse than me, right? Pharisees do that all the time. Or, you know, maybe it's pointing the finger at, at the one who's confronted us. Well, you don't have any right to do this, right? That's exactly what the Pharisees do here. Or perhaps another way of responding, I'm very guilty of this one, is by saying, well, I, I didn't mean that, right? Oh, I, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean that, right? That wasn't my intent. And that is yet another way of defending ourselves instead of saying I'm sorry, instead of humbly confessing. Something that I've learned that's so important that we talked about this quite a lot when I was in graduate school is the the relationship between intent and impact, right? That that so often whenever we've had an impact on someone or or done something, uh, we kind of swivel and say, well, that wasn't my intent. And just dismiss the impact. But we need to acknowledge that this impact has happened, right? We've done something. And so let us respond with humility. Let us respond with grace. Let us respond with repentance. How do we respond whenever we're confronted by all of these things? Instead of pointing fingers at all kinds of other people, what if we turn into ourselves and took that deeper look beyond the surface, beyond self-protection, into the depths of our hearts? And so I want to ask you, are there areas in your life where the outside and the inside don't match? Are there areas in life where you just feel like you're kind of going through the motions, you're doing these rituals, um, but not really getting to the heart of things? Jesus is inviting us deeper. So I encourage you to find time and space to reflect. Where is my heart in this? What What are my intentions. Truly, not the intentions that I sort of defend myself with, but what is really going on under the surface. Jesus invites us deeper and deeper. May we reflect and repent. Amen.